0: When you think about a farm in the Midwest U.S., you probably picture corn and soybeans for as far as the eye can see. Well, Kevin Wolves of Canopy Farm Management thinks someday you'll also picture some trees.
1: The biggest kind of blind spot for us in agriculture right now is that we're all so focused on, on climate change mitigation, getting carbon in the soil, getting carbon in the trees. And and yeah, we need to do that. but. I think we're totally missing the boat on climate change adaptation.
0: He says trees are perfect for this type of adaptation, and his company helps landowners add trees to farms and row crop systems for both their environmental benefits and for their potential for income. But this isn't just another tree planting campaign.
1: Man, planting trees is the easy part. Keeping them alive and having them be useful, that's the hard part. And you don't see any headlines about, A billion trees kept alive, you know, survival rates over 90 percent.
0: Tree crops at scale in the Midwest is not an unprecedented concept, and Kevin envisions a day where agroforestry will be a more normal part of American agriculture.
1: Hazelnut has the potential to take over the Midwest and, and be this really incredible crop, but we are still honing some of the
0: genetics. The potential for agroforestry on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hammerich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode, and every episode this quarter, is brought to you by the Soy Checkoff it takes more than hard work to move a commodity it takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it and that's your soy checkoff whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal investing in production research to help get more from every acre working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line having a sound plan delivers results and you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff see all the ways the soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. And also make sure you stay tuned to the end of today's episode for a spotlight segment featuring Michigan farmer Lori Isley. She shares some of the cool conservation practices that they're adopting on her farm and some of the initiatives she's a part of as a director for the United Soybean Board. Thank you so much to the Soy Checkoff for supporting Ag Innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Kevin Wolz. Kevin and I talk about the fundamentals of agroforestry, their potential in the Midwest, what these systems look like and the barriers and opportunities to agroforestry becoming a more prevalent part of the future of agriculture, especially in the Midwest, where Kevin is focused. Back in 2013, Kevin co-founded the Savannah Institute, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to developing and promoting perennial and tree-based regenerative agriculture systems. Under Kevin's leadership, the Institute quickly gained recognition for its transformative research, education, outreach, and breeding efforts. Kevin's also now the CEO of Canopy Farm Management, and he's leading that company to drive innovation in tree establishment and management via a mobile fleet of -of state-of-the-art farm equipment, appropriate automation, and holistic strategies for tree crop integration. So he's going to talk about how he works with landowners and farmers. Uh, in that capacity. I'm going to drop into the conversation, though, here, where Kevin starts with a bit of an introduction to the basic concepts of agroforestry.
1: Yeah, agroforestry is all about integrating trees in the broader agricultural landscape you know, for example, windbreaks or alley cropping, where you're integrating trees with the row crops, uh, which is really important. You know, I, I, I feel like the biggest kind of blind spot for us in in agriculture right now is that we're all so focused on on climate change mitigation, getting carbon in the soil, getting carbon in the trees. and And yeah, we need to do that. But I think we're totally missing the boat on climate change adaptation. In other words, preparing our agriculture for the climate weirding that's already baked that's already coming down the pike and we need to be preparing for that and trees again not even the tree crop conversation just just trees in general integrated with your existing row crop operation are well known to, to help with that so you know for example trees in a windbreak can buffer stronger winds which are happening more and more every year and increase crop yields downwind of that windbreak alley cropping is really well known to reduce the impact of drought on row crop yields and i mean hell this year uh in illinois our drought started in april it didn't rain for like two months it started in april and you know this is happening more and more every year and um Trees play a huge role in that. And actually, you know, when people, when the landowners come to us as the initial interest, oftentimes the farmers, which are, you know, older, more conventional, are hesitant, to to, to put it nicely. Um, but at the same time, like, they are getting more and more aware, like they can feel this happening, that the droughts are getting more extreme, the wind is damaging their crop more often. Heck, in Illinois, we get more and more news stories now where wind is blowing across highways and causing fatal car accidents. Like It's more front and center in people's minds. And so when we talk to those farmers about how trees can support and make their crops more resilient, it's not as foreign of a concept to them these days.
0: And and you mentioned a couple things, you know, where perennials sort of enter the farm might be like a windbreak or like a riparian buffer. Are those the two kind of biggest catalysts for a farmer saying, you know what, I need to plant some trees?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, we see, we do see kind of a split. We have the the kind of, we call them conservation first projects, which are those that seem to be easier to say yes to. I think a big part of that right now is that the USDA cost shares those practices at like 80% or more, depending on where you're at. And that's the highest it's ever been. And so that's pretty great. And so it's, it's an easier kind of pitch to the farmer or landowner. But then a lot of people do come wanting to really take their farm in a new direction. You know, Our tagline is give your farm a second story. And, and we work with a lot of people that are inheriting the farm. They wanna take the farm in a new direction and they wanna see what they can grow food-wise. You know, they, they view the farm as a food production engine. And so they don't wanna just do the conservation. They wanna grow some nuts, grow some fruit and participate in a new
0: market. So going back to the cost share thing is the way that canopies services work is, let's say, for example, I'm a farmer and I have that USDA cost share. Wow. USDA is willing to put up like 80 percent of this. Would I just hire you to come in and and get that, you know, quote unquote, installed?
1: Yeah. So we do you know fee for service establishment. So there's a specific project. We can just come do that and then it's yours and you run with it. If you're within our kind of narrower service area, we can also do full service management. So not only establishing things, but then keeping things alive and happy and healthy uh, for years to come. So we, we do both of those things. Usually, though, we are helping the farmer or landowner work through that USDA process because the paperwork is a nightmare. Um, but we've done so many of them that we can navigate it a lot more easily. And, uh, you know, a lot of people fall out of the process because they get frustrated with the paperwork and that's just frustrating to me like that should not be a reason why trees are not going in the ground so so by we going to help hold hands through that whole
0: process and that that really helps and, and which usda program is that through that that funding
1: yeah we do a lot of crp conservation reserve program for those practices but yeah, we, we do other stuff too like equip and rcpp
0: okay and um, h- how does that conversation look if I'm like, "Whoa, you've got me intrigued here by not just an ecological service, but also maybe an economic revenue generator? You know, if I'm a farmer, I like to grow things, but I've never grown trees. Uh, what options might be available to me to explore? Yeah,
1: well, let me just say one thing. Usually we're not there's not the farmers that are coming to us with that. You know, in, in the Midwest, 70% of the land is owned by non-operating landowners and the farmers have like one or maybe a three-year lease. And so... You know if you're not going to get yields off the tree for five years you can't make that decision on a three-year lease like it just doesn't work that is a very unfortunate economic fact of our agriculture right now in the midwest but what that means is that it's the landowners that are mostly coming to us with these kinds of interests and saying hey we want to try something new and uh, again they're usually just inheriting the farm and they want to try something new but yeah on the on the tree crop side uh so we focus a lot on chestnuts and currants are probably our two biggest crops right now. But we you know, we do a, a little bit of everything, but those two are really are the ones that are taking off right now because they have been kind of tested thoroughly, we have good genetics already and
0: the markets are there. That's the recipe for success. And the economics of kind of agroforestry. So if I'm going to put some chestnuts or some currants and I'm going to plant those alongside ground that's farmed as a row crop. Is there a certain scale I need to hit to make it economical to do so?
1: Uh yeah, there are definitely, you know, minimum sizes that, you know, if you really want to get economies of scale, you know, for example, if you're gonna put in a well in an irrigation system to irrigate something, that well is gonna cost the same whether you're irrigating 10 acres or 40 acres. Yeah, that's kind of you know universal in agriculture. so yeah there, there's definitely some minimum sizes there. I, I tend to think of kind of the the classic 40 acre parcel as kind of the minimum kind of commercial scale enterprise. yeah, but I mean of course the biggest holdup in all this is that there's a big upfront investment in the trees getting them established because you only do that once. But then you have to kind of sit on your hands for a couple of years. And in the organic world, they call it the valley of death, the three-year transition to get to organic certification. We have our own valley of death. Depending on the crop, it might just be three years, like for currants, or it might be eight years, like for chestnuts. So creative financing mechanisms and early cash flows via maybe alley cropping or, or livestock are pretty important to make sure that, that you can survive the valley of death.
0: This is maybe a silly question because it, it might just be my own personal, like, limited experience in life. But where is the demand coming from in currants and chestnuts? I don't recall the last time I ate a currant or a chestnut. Are these rising, uh, you know, demand crops?
1: Well, yes, but it's all processed, yeah, and there are fresh eating markets certainly, actually, actually that is the highest value market for both crops, the, the fresh eating markets. And actually the vast majority of chestnuts today and currants right now go to the fresh eating markets. And that's great. And we can, you know, we should start with that and saturate those markets again, because those are the top dollar markets. But where the, the growth is really gonna come from are the value added products. And so for chestnuts, usually that's basically making flour. So gluten-free flour is, you know, extreme demand. There's a lot of different approaches now, you know, like almonds have become even bigger because of the demand for gluten-free flour. But, you know, almonds are kind of grown in a desert in California that has a lot of water issues. And so, you know, the industry is constantly looking for new avenues for that. Currents, same thing. I love eating them fresh. Not everyone does. But juice, puree, concentrate. Currants are basically vitamin C on a bush and so any juice that's out there that wants to make claims about vitamin c content they can use current juice or puree or concentrate in their product they don't need to rebrand as we have currants or whatever like no it's it's just it's vitamin c and so it, you know if you think about that as an ingredient that's really really important
0: And I know uh, technically canopy was just created, I think you said a year or so ago, but I know you've been doing this work a long time. Could you give an example of, you know, a farm that did start to incorporate trees and maybe some of the impact that has had on them?
1: Like I said, this is often a family conversation. So you get to know these families really well and sometimes you're, you're counseling them through. The upcoming family discussion at Thanksgiving dinner, and and you know, helping one of the siblings figure out how to talk to their siblings about trees, and yeah, it, it's fun and, and to see the kind of transition that they have over the years. You know, th- there's a family we work with in Central Illinois that has been really excited about chestnuts, and anytime there's soil that's suitable for chestnuts in that new purchase, they're adding a little bit more chestnuts here and there, and they really view it as. Uh, a way of integrating all the generations on the farm, they kind of saw that the younger generations just like they had no interest in sticking around on the farm. like to them it was it was boring. They went to the city. And so, um now there's four generations on this farm actively involved in planting and managing the trees and and they view it as a really exciting opportunity for the different different skill sets on the farm to get involved in different different aspects of the operation. Another example, like a larger kind of conventional farm, we integrated windbreaks around the whole farm to kind of protect it from a conservation lens. But now that farmer is converting all the row crop ground to organic and it's actually really helpful to them that they had uh, the windbreak in there because the windbreak is on the edges of the farms where organic row crop farmers need that buffer between them and their neighbor and the windbreak is already providing that buffer for them and actually as the trees grow will help prevent herbicide drift from entering the farm more than just a a grass buffer would so it really helped launch them
0: into the organic transition as well and and i've seen pictures and videos i think actually from the uk i don't know this was from the u.s of uh kind of the alley cropping you're talking about where you just have really wide alleys like you may have a row or two of trees and then you'd have a pretty wide alley and then another row or two of trees Uh, when you talk about alley cropping is that kind of what you talk about And, and is that happening in parts of the u.s
1: yeah i mean alley cropping is definitely happening more in europe i'm sure what you saw was in europe but uh we are doing more of it in the US. It, it's the slowest practice to gain traction just because you are integrating the trees so closely with the crops. And and yeah, the farmers are are weary. And, and a big kind of, not a myth, but a big hang up for the farmers with alley cropping in particular is that they see those trees throughout the field and in their minds, they go right to my crop yields are going to go to hell and that's a really important conversation to have because the reality is that yes the trees are going to reduce crop yields eventually over time however you're also getting yield off of those trees that is increasing over time which is the part that the farmers forget about because it's new to them and so The whole kind of idea here of of over yielding in an alley cropping system is that collectively those two revenue streams together, the row crops and the trees, by integrating them together, you're able to see higher yields collectively, higher revenues collectively. So we need to get better at having those conversations with farmers to say, yes, your crop yields are going to go down eventually, but row crop yield is no longer going to be the only metric by which you value your farm operation. There's going to be more going on. And that that's the biggest hurdle to get through to make alley cropping more common. But we we are getting better at doing alley cropping. A lot of that has to do with the technology that we use, the equipment that we use. You know, every time we get on a new farm to do alley cropping, the farmer says, oh, this is going to be horrible. I have to, I'm going to have to drive through all these trees and it's going to be so hard. And after we we lay out the trees with our state-of-the-art GPS system, you know, all of our tractors are, you know, they drive themselves and the farmer comes out and's like, oh, wow, those are really straight lines. Heck, those are straighter than, than my cornrows. And like, oh, I can do this. And it turns out Their tractor drives itself, too, and they don't even have to do anything. We give our GPS data to their GPS equipment. The tractor drives itself. It's like they don't even know the trees are there, you know. So when we can leverage the latest technology and work with the farmer with that technology, the complexity does not have to mean inefficiency.
0: And in the alley cropping situation, does that also change any of the the farmers input program as far as, you know, what they can spray on the crops because the trees are there? Does it have an impact on that as well?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. That That's usually the second thing that people ask us. And it can. So we, we do have a short list of no go herbicides. These are basically dicamba 2,4-D, the ones that are super volatile and impact broad leaved species like trees. But beyond that, as long as you're following the label and not spraying on a 60 mile an hour, you know, day, generally farmers are fine Uh, and trees are more resilient than you think. And the the herbicides that the farmers are using are generally of different categories than what are going to impact the trees. And so aside from those couple no go items, it actually doesn't impact them too much. Okay.
0: Wow, and uh, I imagine in areas of the Midwest, you're probably putting these on dry land, non-irrigated ground, and uh, specifically with currants and chestnuts. Uh, are they able to thrive in that environment?
1: Yeah. So anytime we do the tree crop plantings, we do install irrigation on those. So we'll we'll drill a well and and irrigate those. But for all of the other, you know, wind breaks or buffers, those aren't irrigated, and the trees do do fine. We get we have plenty of water here. But yeah, for the for the tree crops, you know, it's not that they need the irrigation to survive, but it's a great insurance policy to have when like this year the drought starts in April. So that that's really helpful. And it also increases yields. The irrigation systems pay for themselves very quickly because of the the increase in the yield that you see. You know, it's it's even more so than in row crops because like berries are like you know, 99% water.
0: And so if you can make sure that either where well, irrigated the, your yield gains really show it. Yeah, absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, my wheels are turning here uh, because I, I just, I love trees. I, I, maybe it's me coming from California. I just uh, love tree crops in general. Outside of currants and chestnuts, are there any other crops that you're either experimenting with or you you could see maybe becoming a bigger part of the program going forward?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the, the runner-ups are probably hazelnut and on the nut side and elderberry on the fruit side. Hazelnut has the potential to take over the Midwest and, and be this really incredible crop, but we are still honing some of the genetics. And we have a lot of trials going with the universities and at the Savannah Institute. We have the first ever clonal hazelnut production farm now at a Savannah demonstration farm in Illinois trialing that, uh, you know, for kind of uniform machine harvesting. So we're getting, we're getting close with hazelnuts. And and once we crack that code, then yeah, all bets are off that that they're going to go crazy. And on the elderberry side, I mean, elderberry is really valued for its nutraceutical properties. The problem is that right now we can't machine harvest it. It's all hand harvested. And that is really a limiting factor for hitting scale. And so there are various parties working on mechanical harvester. Until we can crack that, it's going to remain kind of a, a smaller part of the portfolio.
0: And, and with that, I'm just curious, why not a crop like blueberry that can be machine harvested? Granted, probably not for fresh, but for for frozen processed. And, you know, why not a crop like that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, blueberries specifically have, have very, very picky soil requirements and pH requirements that don't do well in like Illinois, Wisconsin, where we are. But yeah, I mean, in general, I mean, we are working with the more kind of conventional tree crops, you might say, but we see the, the real kind of amazing opportunities with these newer crops that are not new globally, but are new to our region and have been kind of missed out on. I mean, so, you know, black currants, they, they have faded into our, our memories, but around 1900, Illinois was, I think, the third or fourth largest black currant producing state in the United States and the industry was massive. It was just as big as the black berry industry is today. But then it has this really fascinating history about how black currants were then illegal because of this disease that they passed to white pines. And then for like a whole generation, they were illegal and we forgot about them. And now they're legal again because we bred away that issue. So, you know, they're not really a novel crop to the region. It's just that we skipped a generation and now they're back.
0: I love history like that. I've been nerding out on kind of ag history in general lately, and that's that's really cool. I did not know that. Uh, so they were a threat to the white pine. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And so we we banned them. That's interesting. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that the answer might be totally obvious, but there also might be something deeper that you've experienced and I just can't think of. Why haven't we embraced agroforestry, at least in this country, in the past you know 100 years or so it seems like you know 100 plus years ago yes farms were a lot more diverse probably everyone had a backyard orchard in addition to their livestock and chickens and row crops and it was more integrated but in the last 100 years you know I almost never see agroforestry at scale what are those barriers yeah well geez we can wane philosophical
1: on this one It, it can it can be a big deal I mean You know, and this isn't this isn't just agroforestry. I think the answers here are kind of universal to regenerative ag practices uh, in general. I think for me, the biggest one is the kind of the set of subsidy programs that have supported the status quo and have allowed us to not feel the impacts, have allowed farmers and landowners to not feel the impacts of a broken system if you remove those supports then the wounds become more obvious and people will will be more urgently looking for solutions so i think that's that's a big one we have made some good strides in that realm over the last decade but not nearly enough and i think the the second one you know is about the finance and the economics with trees you know in the midwest here we we've kind of lost our knowledge around financing trees and and making that happen. You know, we don't have to totally reinvent the wheel here. There are really incredible models from the West Coast that can be translated here. But it it can be as simple as like the bank doesn't know how to do with that kind of loan. And like we just need them to talk to their partners in California and like, oh, well, they do it over there. We can do it over here, too. And so there's just like basic kind of financial literacy and economic constructs that are just missing to allow us to
0: do these different practices. I think those are my top two, I'd say. No, I I appreciate that. And a lot of times, with a system as large as the the agricultural system, a problem that could seem very, easy to solve, like, hey, just talk to your person in California becomes a heavier lift because it has to happen, you know, at scale. How much of a catalyst has machine harvesting been to making this happen? Is that have those been recent advancements for crops like currants and chestnuts that it's like, okay, now we don't need to just send a crew out there to go pick these things by hand. This can really happen.
1: I mean. Maybe we've only started to import these machines recently, but these machines have been around for for a long time in Europe and we buy them all from Europe. That's, you know, that's the secret here is like, we don't have to reinvent these things. We could just buy it from Europe. Yeah, so th- those are not as new.
0: Well, uh, let's talk about, you know, keeping these things alive. Uh, Once they're planted, you know, I I, longtime listeners will know I'm really into uh, hard cider in making hard cider. And I planted a dozen trees of heritage apple varieties at my parents' house, which I don't live anywhere close to. And, uh, you know, set up the irrigation, planted the trees and felt good about myself. And my dad's like, okay, well, when are you gonna take care of these trees Are you, you know you're gonna come back and prune these trees are you gonna make sure they don't die and i'm like you know i should have thought more about that before i planted it. i was just so excited to plant them and i i think that about other kind of tree planting efforts like okay great but if the trees die i don't know that we're really getting anywhere so how hard is it to keep these things alive
1: <laughs> yeah i mean you know it frustrates the heck out of me when i see all kinds of headlines of 3 million trees planted over here and you know we're going to plant a billion trees over here and like man planting trees is the easy part keeping them alive and having them be useful that's the hard part and you don't talk you don't see any headlines about a billion trees kept alive you know you know survival rates over 90% like you don't see those headlines that's frustrating yeah so so you know the first 3 to 5 years that is the important time if you can get a tree through that then you're in pretty great shape because then they are yes quite resilient deep roots you know drought resistant like you know perennials in general are great but those first establishment years are really important and that's where again can- canopy providing the full service management options for farmers is really helpful because they may not have the equipment the, the specialized equipment to mow efficiently around trees or to spray efficiently around trees and so you know if we can do it with the more specialized state of the art equipment and do it therefore faster we might be able to do it at the same cost as they do it themselves because it takes you know a tenth of the time and so that that's kind of the value that we're trying to provide to people so a uh, kind of controversial topic that comes up in this light is herbicide use you know so a lot of a lot of people in the organic and obviously organic but in, even just broadly in the regenerative space are kind of categorically opposed to herbicides. And so we do use herbicide on at least some of the farms that we that we manage. And for us it's about keeping all the tools in the toolbox. From my perspective, we cannot afford with the climate weirding that's coming down the pike, we cannot afford to tie our hands behind our back and take a bunch of tools out of our toolbox to make this transition a reality. And herbicide is one of those tools. Now, when we use herbicide, we're not blindly spraying, you know, the entire farm. It it looks very different from in a kind of row crop context. And so herbicide use in establishing trees or transitioning to agroforestry is more about very targeted applications in those first three to five years, usually just in the strips right next to the row of trees. And after that little transition, after being used for you know, 70 years on the farm. Now, for a couple year transition, we can get the farm over into a better place where the soil has transitioned, the seed bank has transitioned. And oftentimes, by using very targeted herbicide applications, your overall carbon story on the farm is actually better because you don't have to go out there every five seconds and do all this mechanical intervention, spend all this labor getting out there and combating weeds in that way. And we tend to see much higher survival as a result of it. So sometimes controversial topic, but I think it's really important to to talk about openly. And um, yeah, that's kind of how we see it. All
0: right. Well, it seems like the... Um... And some would call this idealistic, but the ideal, you know, scenario would be some sort of system that incorporates trees, row crops, and livestock. Do you have that happening, you know, anywhere at scale? I know it's happening in places, but you know, at a, a big scale, is anyone really executing on that here in the US that that you know of? And I'm sure there's somebody, but I mean any example you can point to.
1: Yeah. I wish. Um so Silva Pasture. Out of all the kind of agroforestry practices, all the sweets, the suite of practices that that is agroforestry, civil pasture definitely gets the most attention on all the like top solutions for climate change lists. It's usually the the on there before everything else. And 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 livestock farmers are integrating trees at a, at a faster rate. I think they see the benefits really strongly in in their operations. And it can be easier to integrate with their equipment and their and their practices. So we do see a lot of people doing silvopasture. At a larger scale, though, especially integrating with crops, that's a it's a harder one. I wish I had something specific to point to. You know, I often think about alley cropping as as kind of a, a transition, a long-term transition towards silvopasture. So, you know, when you integrate trees and alley cropping, you're going to continue to do your warm season annual crops initially, corn, beans, whatever you're growing, and you're not going to see any yield impact for probably the first 10 years at least because the trees are small and the rows are widely spaced. But then at some point you'll start to see an impact of that because the trees are growing at the same time the summer annuals are and they're competing. At that point you're going to switch to winter annuals. so small grains, things that are mostly growing in the earlier spring. For some tree species, like for example, in Europe, they do a lot of uh, walnut intercropped with the winter annual grains. Uh, And that's because those winter annuals are basically ready to be harvested just when the walnuts are starting to leaf out. There's almost no overlap in their seasons and there's no real competition. So you can get the efficiencies out of that integrated system but not really see the competition impacts. But then eventually, as the trees get really big, even those crops will start to see a decline. And then at that point, I think the kind of mature state is integrating a perennial ground cover pasture and integrating livestock more holistically throughout that farm. So I kind of see every farm as this kind of like journey along that trajectory and the landscape as a patchwork of farms that are at different points of that journey.
0: This is really cool. Uh, and, and it's uh, something I wish I knew more about because I'm sure there's questions I just don't know to ask because I don't know what I don't know. What are the steps, though, if a farmer is listening or a landowner is probably more likely, a landowner is listening and they, they want to get started, do they just reach out to you all and say, what do you think I should do? <laughs> I mean, uh, What what are the first steps to getting started?
1: Yeah, well, definitely can reach out to us. So our, our website is canopyfm.com. FM like the radio, but it's for farm management. So the the first step is we take a look at the farm together, we talk about their motivations are, and we will run an analysis on their farm to see, are there any edges of the farm that would benefit from having a windbreak? Will those edges also qualify for the USDA cost share? Same thing for riparian buffers. Do you have any vulnerable riparian areas on the farm that you're cropping right up against? Should we be protecting that? Can you get cost share for that? We look at the soil and the climate, and we have a kind of state-of-the-art suitability mapping tool where we can say, okay, here's, here's this farm. Where on the farm is it suitable to grow chestnuts? Where on the farm is it suitable to grow elderberry? And we can actually say, you know, we don't wanna waste time teaching someone about chestnuts if they don't even have soil on their farm that can grow chestnuts. That's not, that's we should shift to talking about something else. So we do that kind of full analysis to see what are even the opportunities that are here and generally, we want to start with one thing at a time, rather than go crazy uh, and do everything at once. I really like starting with those edge practices—the the, the riparian buffers, the wind breaks—as a way to get people's feet wet. For some farms, this may be the first tree planted on the farm in hundred years. And there's kind of like a cultural shift in awareness of what does it look like to see a tree grow? How much do you think it's supposed to grow every year? And so starting where that learning can happen on the edges of the farms, where the farmers can slowly get used to what it means to have those on the farm before you start doing alley cropping or diving into a tree crop. That's kind of the sequence we like to go.
0: All right, well, thank you so very much to Kevin Wolves for taking the time to be on the show. Enjoyed that conversation. I'd had agroforestry on the radar for a long time, but just really wanted to get somebody who could speak from firsthand experience of what it was like to do this in a commercial operation. It seems like there's a lot of people who want to talk about it out there who've never actually done it. So it was cool to get Kevin on the show to to really speak from experience about not only planting trees, as he mentioned, but actually making them useful and keeping them alive and making sure that they are an integral part of the system to adapt to not only climate change, but just to, to create more resiliency in farm systems uh, in general. So anyway, enjoy that. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes for their website for for both the Savannah Institute and for Canopy Farm Management. But before we go, it's time for our spotlight segment. I'm very pleased to welcome onto the show Michigan farmer and director of the United Soybean Board, Lori Isley. Lori's operation Sunrise Farms is a great case study of implementing innovation and conservation on the farm. She's also the chair of the United Soybean Board's Communication and Education Committee. So she's able to share a little bit about some of the efforts to engage farmers and the public at large on behalf of the soybean industry. As a lifelong farmer who also spent over 30 years teaching agri-science at the high school level, she's uniquely suited to serve the industry in this way. Before we get into her communication and education committee stuff, I wanted her just to share a little bit about their family farm, which is located in southeast Michigan.
2: Sunrise Farms is a fifth-generation farm with the sixth generation as a part of it as well. We farm about 1,100 acres in southeastern Michigan. We're part of the Lake Erie water basin, which certainly influences some of the choices we make as far as conservation practices that we use. But we're very proud of the legacy that we have in the area and some of the practices that we have implemented. And we just feel strongly about agriculture as an integral part of our community, as well as just the long-reaching extensions of agriculture and what we do on the farm and how that spreads into Our state and and across our country and into the world when you look at, at so many different things from sustainability to just providing a high protein product for other people to have.
0: And you mentioned a couple of things there. You mentioned some of the practice on the farm and you mentioned sustainability. Can you maybe talk about that and why it's important, particularly, you know, in your area of Michigan?
2: There's a lot of definitions out there for sustainability. I think everyone's is a little bit different. For some people, it's just, okay, can I farm another year? For us, it's very much a mindset that says we want to make sure that each year that we farm this land, we do it in a way that is environmentally responsible. But in the end, we want this farm to go on and on and on and to continue to improve. So we make a strong emphasis on soil health. We have a strong emphasis on keeping both the nutrients and the water that we use available to our crop. And to that means we use um, strip tillage with our corn. We use no-till and minimum till with our soybeans. We have a lot of precision agriculture practices that we have in place as far as controlling both fertilizer and crop protectant applications, as well as seed populations, lots of different things. We do a lot of soil testing just so we know what we don't know. And that's kind of a slogan we run by is we don't know what we don't know. So how can we gather that data and then most importantly, use that data to make informed decisions about what we do on the farm?
0: Right. Well, it strikes me with sustainability that sometimes that word carries a little bit of a cringe factor because so many people just talk about it. But for for you farming, you actually have to figure out what it means for for you and your farm. As you do talk to people in the general public, and I'm sure you interact with non-farmers on a regular basis, you know, what do you tell them about why it's important to you to adopt those types of practices?
2: The first thing I try and do when I talk to the general public is to make sure they understand that I'm a consumer as well so what what impacts their family also impacts my family so the decisions that i make in our farming practices are designed to be good for everyone but i think it's important for the general public to recognize why we use the tools that we use i mean some people you know would think well why use any pesticides at all it's like well using pesticides or genetically modified seed as far as that's concerned are essential for us to use the conservation that we use we couldn't use the conservation tillage methods we used unless we had those other tools in our toolbox. And agriculture is very different from even one side of our county to the other, let alone across the state or across the country. So it's important for people to understand that what works on my farm in southeastern Michigan may not work on a farm in northeastern Nebraska. There are differences that go, but every one of us and many of us have already made decisions of implementing more Conservation practices, I think the newest data that I heard just this morning is about 70% of the soybean farms across the country are using some conservation practices, which is pretty exciting news. Yeah,
0: you know, I think more and more people are, are not only realizing that, but also starting to think of farmers as the solution to some of these problems, whether it's cleaning up waterways or sequestering carbon or, or adding biodiversity or things like that. You know, how do you as a farmer and also as a leader in the soybean industry, how do you respond to that added responsibility of we don't just want, you know, good, consistent, low cost food? We also want all these other things.
2: It does seem like a heavy burden to carry sometimes. We want people to understand that most farms are run by farm families. In many cases, these farm families are legacy farms. They've been doing this for, for many, many generations. I'm really pleased that there is a pretty high trust of farmers. There is not quite as high a trust of farming and farming practices. So it's really imperative that farmers take the step to talk to their neighbors to talk to other people that aren't in agriculture and help them understand why they do what they do and sometimes that might be as simple as you know signs along the road that just say we practice conservation or you know this is our pollinator patch that we put in simply to provide some biodiversity for the migrating insects that might be coming this direction so many times it's very simple things but I'm always amazed when I talk to individuals not in agriculture and sometimes even very close to agriculture, what they do not know about what we do, because it's commonplace to us. It is not commonplace to many, many other people.
0: And that's actually probably a perfect segue into, you know, your role in communication and education on the committee. What are kind of your priorities as part of the Soybean Board in terms of getting the word out? Is that consumer facing about the benefits of soy or what are the kind of the priorities there?
2: We kind of have three parts to our priority. One is soy reputation. That's really just what do we have to do to help people have a better understanding of the benefits of soy what do we have to do to help people understand the tremendous versatility that the many products that can be made into it, how it can really be a solution to many problems, anything from hunger to fuel, fossil fuels, to taking the place of products that might have PFAS in them or might have other chemicals in them that are not as good for us. So When we start looking at what that is, we really go in that direction. We also have a whole section that works on checkoff reputation. And checkoff reputation is really just how do we make sure that the farmers that are paying into this checkoff, all 515,000 of them, recognize the value that's coming from it. And, you know, we have the, the data from that, but it's important for us to tell that story, to talk about the money that we invested in the dredging of the Mississippi River and how that brought back a greater return to every farmer. And, you know, what we're doing with with Goodyear to put so they've soy in their tires now and then what the ripple effect of that was. But our two major sections are going to be the soy reputation area as well as the checkoff reputation area. We do quite a bit of research, too. Just as we use research on our farms, use data to inform your decisions, then you feel like you, you have increased your chances of success.
0: Absolutely. I know, you know, one of those investments that the industry is is making is, is this collaboration called Farmers for Soil Health. Could you maybe talk about that initiative a little bit?
2: Certainly, Farmers for Soil Health is a collaboration between soy, corn, and pork. It is backed by a significant grant from the U.S. government, and it seeks to improve conservation adoption across the country. A few of the things that we especially like about it is that it is not a one-size-fits-all program. It is based in the individual states, and the states are responsible for getting that information to the farmers in that state and also getting them to that. It is cover crop focused to begin with, but it will also provide some technical assistance. And in time, hopefully relatively soon, it will also have a component that will help farmers match up with Companies and industries that wish to be able to say we are purchasing products that are raised in an environmentally sustainable way or using conservation practices, however, that ends up being set up. But that there is a desire for the consumer, they want to buy products that are sustainably raised. And so, if we can begin to put in place a marketplace, so to speak, where we can match up those farmers that are using those practices with those companies that wish to be able to make that claim then it's
0: a win-win for everyone. A win-win for everyone. That is what we're looking for. Thank you very much to Lori Isley for sharing her story with us here on the show and more about what soybean farmers like her are doing around the country to be stewards of the land while producing such a versatile crop. Thanks as well to the Soy Checkoff for their continued support of ag innovation and this podcast. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.